0: This episode is a repost. The Stand is taking a break for the Christmas holiday period, and we are posting some of our favorite episodes from our back catalog. You can find more at TheStandWithEamonDunfey.com. Have a lovely Christmas and Happy New Year.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med.
0: with Eamon Dunphy. My guest today is an old friend and a very, very special guy. Uh, There are so many things he's done uh, in journalism. Uh, He was a publicist for The Beatles and many other bands. Uh, He was a friend of John Lennon and Yoko's and his first great scoop as a music journalist for Melody Maker uh, was being part of John and Yoko's bed-in when they stayed in bed for quite some time. Uh, for peace, his name is B P Fallon, uh, and B P. It's a great pleasure to interview you. I know you won't be happy with that intro. <laughs> Tell me what I've missed out.
1: Well, you missed out what I do now. Uh, do you know what that is? Yes,
0: I do. You are you are a musician.
1: You're um, DJing. Well, I'm a musician, really. I'm in I'm in I'm in the twitch and twitch and um, warble racket. Yeah, basically. And I write songs, and I have a band and stuff. I DJ very rarely. Yeah, um, I did generally for parties for well, you people did a, that I know gig, very well.
0: You did a gig for you too. You went around the world on their zoo tour, their zoo TV t- I did, tour, yeah, and d- you were DJing up
1: in a big glass cage. No, in and the Trabant. Uh, Pardon? Which was, could, was a, you could call it a glass cage. It was a Trabant, which is those, those East oh, German... Oh, yeah, the
0: old East, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the old except,
1: you know, East I German had, cars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the joke is, how do you double the value of a, a Trabant? You fill it full of petrol. You know, <laughs> um, they kind of, you have to be careful with them because they're sort of cardboard. Uh, and if they get soggy, they kind of fall apart. But my one typically was an open-topped Trabant, um, and it was mirror-covered. Yes. So it's very heavy indeed, actually. But I would sit in this thing and, uh, and play records for the, uh, the the U2 audience. It was be, has been described as foreplay, <laughs> you know, get them ready.
0: Now, I want to go back to your origins. You're, are you a Dubliner?
1: Well, I'm a Dubliner so far as I was born here. Yeah, well, that's... You good. know, and people say, where were you born? I was born in... in, a, in a, A nursing home I believe in Bagot Street uh, which I don't know the name of and which I think is gone Um, but yes I was born in Dublin
0: and what did your dad do
1: my father bless him was a Colonel John Fallon was a professional soldier for 30 years Uh, he was in the British Army uh, but also during that time he served in uh, the Khyber rifles in the northwest frontier he was in the Arab Legion Um, uh, the, yes, he was a professional soldier for 30 years. That's what he did. My mother came from uh, what you could loosely describe as a horsey family yes. in County Meath. Uh, her father was well into horses. Yes.
0: Um, so was it, it was a comfortable uh, South Dublin experience?
1: No, it wasn't actually. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a largely a German experience uh, because when I was two or three, my father was posted to Germany. Uh, and so we all went there. Um, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed kindergarten there. Um, but after a while, the schools were just just so horrible, you know, that one had to be sent to England to go to school. Yeah. So in the middle of all of this, my father was posted to Aden, uh, which was a hot spot. Yes. Uh, people were looking for their liberation. It was the tail end of the empire. Uh, and families weren't really allowed to go there because it was dangerous so we stayed with my uncle and aunt uh, Uncle Peter and Auntie Eileen in Lennoxbrook in County Meath um, just outside of Kells so I would go to school in England and then I'd come back to a holiday to Ireland Yes. Um, uh, and I think that partly uh, seeded the uh, nomadic part of me
0: Yeah, incidentally, uh, Elvis did his national service for the U.S. Army in Germany. He did. It must have been around the same time, no?
1: We never got to hang out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But but you've hung out with quite a few people, and we'll come to that uh, in time. The the sort of nomadic thing, your first job?
1: My first job was um, being on television every week, every Saturday, on telefish Aaron this black and white TV station coming out of Donnybrook picking the Pops was a sort of jukebox jury type thing where you'd have a panel uh, you know with some celebrities on it or, or, um, uh, and me and then mainly Larry Gogan presenting it and you'd, you know, you'd talk about the new yes. releases that he voted a hit or a miss <laughs> <from>. <laughs> uh, and then you'd have bands on you know I remember one time we had a band from Cork the Fontana show band and they did, um, they did the B-side of their new single, which was Slow Down, the Larry Williams song that the Beatles had just done. You know, come on, pretty baby, won't you walk with me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the lead singer on, on the track and guitar player was this fellow called Rory Gallagher. So all these sort of little magical things were popping up as you went along.
0: Yes. Like Uh, mushrooms. At school, uh, academically, uh, were you any good or were you interested?
1: I was very good, but I was completely disinterested. So I didn't care. Uh, I had no interest at all. Um, For example, I didn't like the French teacher. This was at Ampleforth, which is a public school run by... It's a very expensive
0: public school for Polish
1: Catholics, Uh, correct? Kind of thing, yeah. And... um, I didn't like the French teachers. So I didn't know what to do. So after the exam, uh, everyone put their thing in a locker, you know. This is not showing my best character, really, folks. Uh, but I just took half of them and threw them away. So basically the whole exam was cancelled, you know. Um, at school, I see, you know, if you look at my, the lists, of the, you know, I'm always top. And then as time goes by, I slither down because I lost interest. I didn't believe the things they were propagating. And the main thing that they were propagating uh, was that we we are superior young gentlemen. uh, And the onus is on us to treat the plebs as best as possible. You know, but we are superior, so get on with it. It's better than... Uh, and I thought that was bollocks.
0: It's better than the principle now, which is that we are superior gentlemen, and you can grind the plebs into the dust if you want.
1: That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but try to be kind to them. Was, <laughs> was music uh, a, a passion? Oh, yeah, from 11 years old, hearing one record, 11 years old, everything changed... I wanted to be part of this I had no idea how I didn't you know I just didn't know but I knew that this was this was for me um but it involved things like you know barging into Brian Epstein's office in Liverpool he was the manager of the Beatles God bless him not only of the Beatles but half the sort of pop stars of the world from Liverpool like Cilla Black and Jerry and the Pacemakers and Billy J. Kramer and the Coasters and the Remo Four and Tommy Quickly and Sounds Incorporated, etc. And I barged in here to the the King of Pop and, you know, he was berating someone over a huge desk I later discovered was Jerry Marsden from Jerry and the Pacemakers. Uh, And I backed out. I said, I'm awfully sorry, you know. And I wrote to him from school and I said, you know, I don't remember me. I'm very discourteously barged into your office, but I'm trying to get into the music business. Uh, and he wrote back to this schoolboy, this fellow who had other things yes, to do, indeed, yeah. and said, look, I'd be very, yes, I do remember it, and it's fine. I'd be very happy to recommend you for a job. Uh, this new company started by my friend Dick James is called Northern Songs. It's going to be publishing music. I probably would be the... Including G- the Beatles, G- I think. Exactly. Northern exactly. Songs, yes. exactly. Uh, and I would probably be the t or something. Uh, but I just thought music publishing uh, that sounds kind of fairly boring so I didn't do anything about it but I mean I thought it was very nice that this gentleman um, took the time out to do that I was very impressed I think it's brilliant and it's a good lesson you know because I get letters from people and I try I'm not successful 100% but I try and respond to people you know
0: now the decision to or sometimes it is isn't a decision um, but sometimes people just drift to leave here, uh, to to go off. I mean, you went and you wrote for Melody Maker, which was massive, um, a music paper based in London. Um, did you make a decision
1: one day? I'm going. No. Uh, in 1966, I went over to England and stayed there for some six months, um, checking it out. I got a job, dro- a job driving a bread van. Uh, in my lack of humility, uh, I was very nervous that people would see me in I- from Ireland and think, "Oh, the poor fellow, he's he's now um, driving a bread van." Well, the point is twofold. One is driving a bread van is probably the, the most. Uh, <clears throat> Socially valuable thing I've ever done. Well, actually, that's not true because I Isn't think it? turning people onto good music is socially valuable. Yeah, uh, but it's certainly one of the most legitimate jobs I've ever done. Um, and then there was this there was this trend at the time. We're talking 1966 for rock stars to wear military uniforms. You know, like from the Crimea War or something like that. There was—you know 've yes. seen the wonderful pictures of Jimi Hendrix with all the braids and everything like yes. that. And. Pete Townsend was at this, and uh, it was actually illegal because you 're not allowed to wear the king or the queen's uniform unless you have an entitlement. so I rang up Newsweek and I said, "Look, this is going on and I'm im I'm here to write about it so um I interviewed Keith Richard and he was wearing all his regalia and medals and stuff like that. I interviewed Pete Townsend, Roy Wood from the move, and gave them this article, you know, so that was about the only thing of any consequence that I did there apart from having incredible fun, like, for instance, uh, going to the International Times launch at the Roundhouse. The International Times was an underground paper. Yes. Because you've got to remember it was us versus them at this point in time. It still might be, folks. Um, And there was this party. A lot of people had had, had ingested sugar cubes um, to sweeten the uh, ambient. That was then, LSD, was it? Uh, well, I don't know, And I'm a bit of a novice. It was on a hallucinogenic uh, drug. Is, is that Maybe. what it is? That <laughs> yes. explains a lot of things now. <laughs> um, you know, over there was Paul McCartney, uh, possibly oh. off his trolley, dancing away. There was Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett, the magical Pink Floyd. And there was the soft machine. Now, I know in Radio Land you can't see me, but my, oh, my arms are very near each other. So basically, he stood in the middle. You could, in one ear, hear Pink Floyd, in another ear, a soft machine. It was quite a wondrous thing. I'd probably never hear the same thing again. Um, so there were all these adventures, and, of course, there was the rise of Jazz Woodbine, um, uh, which is um, um, a relaxant uh, herb medicine. Uh, Come again? Med- Jazz Woodbine. Jazz Woodbine. Well, you see, the wool, w- w- the w- the Wills Woodbine...
0: Yeah, I know. It was the
1: working man's cigarette. Yes, I know it was. Uh, And the Beatniks, pre-rock and roll, uh, used to smoke these things called jazz woodbine, uh, which was basically a a cigarette with um, a little tickle in it.
0: Yeah. uh, Of cannabis? Whatever you're having
1: yourself, Eamon. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you you got a taste? I I did have I had a joint, actually, once. (laughs) Now, <laughs> so I'm saying this colour, you know, I'm not being facetious. Did you totally. go, no, no I you you know. You walked, walked into this amazing everything. world. You know. Um, pardon? You walked into this amazing world. I walked into this amazing world. Or this amazing world kindly put its cloak of welcome around me. Um, but certainly there was no problem. Did you... you Did you come back to Dublin then? Then I came back for a while, and once people found out I was here, I was offered jobs on the radio and television and stuff, so I did that. And then I hooshed off again in 1969. I've been going backwards and forwards all the time anyway.
0: Yeah, but I should say, so that people can sort of uh, get a a fix on you, That I mean, you won a Jacobs Award, which was a huge deal here, for a music programme you did on... uh, 2FM, the BP Fallon Orchestra, I think it's called. Uh, And was journalism, if we were to pin you down at that point to one thing uh, that might allow you to express your love for music, meet musicians and so on, was journalism the thing?
1: Not specifically. Uh, You see, all my life, Eamon, once having, you know, fallen down this dark hole of loving rock and roll and pop music and stuff. Uh, I've been a propagator thereof, you know, whether it's being a DJ on the radio, whether it's writing about something, uh, or now, whether it's actually doing it. Yes. You know, um, so it's always been spreading the message. I remember going to see the Beatles at the Cavern, you know, uh, and I was talking to some girl, was chatting her up, basically, you know, but I said, you must be really pleased, you know, that they're getting so popular now. They were on they were on the brink of the biggest yeah. nibble we've ever seen in the world. You know, yeah. And uh, she said, "Oh well, you know." And she was actually said, "I think they're going to move to London soon now." And, da, 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 and she was really disappointed. And she said, yes. "No, I, I like the Runaways better now. Not the American group. There was a New York group there uh, and a Liverpool group. Uh, so they felt that they were kind of being taken away from them. You know, no longer would they. Yeah. Well, I was a in for Mary from Dingle or something.
0: I was in the northwest of England in Manchester. Uh, during those years.
1: So you were probably aware of them bubbling under, were you?
0: Yes, I was. I saw them in uh, Jimmy Savile, had a club called the Three Coins in Fountain Street in Been Manchester. In there. there. Yeah. yeah, I saw the Beatles there. I saw uh, the Hollies were a Manchester band, yeah. and they were fabulous. They used to play a lunchtime gig in the plaza, uh, which when we'd finish training at Man U, we'd go in there for our lunch, of Coke and a burger or something, and Hollys would be playing oh.
1: uh, as a kind and of probably like one and sixpence in, right?
0: Yeah, and, uh, very easy to get in, and they were a wonderful band. And then uh, this great explosion—they burst out of uh, the northwest, Liverpool primarily, but Manchester also, and had Birmingham, it. and Birmingham. And that was that became the scene then in the late.
1: Well, that was the middle of the world for a minute. Yes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going to Liverpool at that time uh, as a schoolboy. Uh, I mean, I remember in three days seeing the Beatles four times, Um, a lunchtime session in the Cavern, and then they played in a ballroom. I believe it was the Grafton Ballroom, and they did two sets. Uh, And then I saw them in Blackpool Opera House. Yes. Uh, Blackpool Opera House. It was a big deal. uh, It was a big, you know, it's the seaside thing. Yeah, no, it's huge. Uh, But supporting them was Shane Fenton. Yeah. uh, Who later on transmogrified into... Uh, Alvin Stardust, really? but Shane came on, uh, and he was old school rock and roll, and he did movements and shapes and stuff like that. You know, uh, a, you know uh, yeah, whatever. B.J. And, <laughs> and all the audience laughed. Yeah, right. Because six months later they would have been screaming and everything, but now suddenly this guy was in an anachronism, and they just laughed and threw things at him and everything. Can you imagine?
0: Yeah, uh, I, and then well, the
1: Beatles came along and just changed the world.
0: With the um, work for Melody Maker was just part of your journey.
1: Yeah, I, never, I was never staff. No. I mean, I'd ring them up and say, look, I've got this. I think the first thing I did was the review of the Beach Boys in Dublin. Uh, and then I think the next thing I did was the thing on the Dubliners. I did a few pieces on the Dubliners yes. in Melody Maker, you know. Yeah. And that's how I became friends with them. Uh, I mean, to this day, I miss Ronnie and his wife, Deirdre. They were very good friends over the years and beautiful people and uh, the whole Dubliners vibe was really not dissimilar to the attitude of punk insofar as uh, it's we'll do it our way and if you don't like it tough Uh, and without realizing it the Dubliners informed the attitude of everyone since be it Rory Gallagher or 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 be it you know be it the rats or be it you 2 or be it Phil Linnet you know this like we're going to try our way rather than just sort of get moulded into a piece of shite.
0: Yeah, Luke was particularly... um, I was very friendly with Luke and he was particularly horrified by what the Dubliners um, became, which is they never progressed... I hated Seven Drunken Nights, which got them on top of the pops and went to number eight in the British charts because that propelled them onto a circuit where they'd go round every year playing the same... Venues in wherever, England, they were very popular in Germany, singing the same old stuff, and Luke was desperate, and he was in terrible despair about, why don't we do something new?
1: Well, Ronnie would have the same viewpoint. Yes. That's why he left, and he did join again. But, uh, you know, Ronnie was very much, I'm not saying the others weren't, uh, but he was a musical adventurer, and he didn't see why he couldn't go and do a record now with a... A classical guy, or or whatever it might be, you know, yeah, uh, just 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 to spread the thing. You see, they do be saying do be do be do. They do be say, saying, "Amen." Uh, don't give the audience what they want, but give the audience what they didn't know they wanted. Yes. Once you pander to the audience, you're you're losing. You know, that, because you're following them, and in fact, they're meant to be following you. I'm Nick Friedman. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Just on that theme, and it's not part of our narrative, Bob Dylan is uh, renowned stroke notorious for at his concerts, I think the recent one in Dublin, not singing all his classics and uh, doing things, and the audience gets very disappointed and restless. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, is, uh, the, is Dylan I, in the
1: pantheon? Of, in your pantheon, I mean, Dylan is it, Dylan. You know, I don't believe in geniuses in rock and roll, but if there were, he would be <coughs> one. Um, every artist is entitled to do whatever they want. They don't owe the audience anything. Uh, even you know these sort of plasticized boy bands. Uh, if if you have an artistic bent uh, and you're there to make music rather than simply only to entertain or simply only to make money. Um, nothing wrong with both of the, either of those, I'm all for it. Um, but you should be able to do what you want and the audience by now know that Prince, not Prince, uh, Freudian slip, Bob Dylan can be kind of cantankerous. He doesn't necessarily say anything. The arrangements of the song are such that sometimes the band aren't even sure of what song they're doing um but if 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 bob dylan came out there and started juggling that's his entitlement uh it's the audience entitlement to like it or not to like it
0: well let me just challenge you on that i mean in dylan's case there are so many great great songs true uh millions yes what, thousands hundreds so many great songs that immediately that have changed people's lives, that are the soundtrack, if you like, to a life. I particularly like Dylan, but the Beatles would be the same. Now you go and you pay your money and the artist doesn't perform those songs. Is that not self-indulgent? Depends. And is it not Depends. cheating the audience? Because don't forget, it's a once, if you're living in Dublin, maybe it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. No, You've loved this I, artist. I
1: understand that, you do. but rock and roll is meant to be about freedom, uh, and rock and roll is 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 not meant to be uh, pandering. You know, for example, uh, if if the if if the Beatles uh, had had done the sensible thing, they would have played instrumentals only. They would have worn shiny suits. And they would have done a little kicking thing on yes. stage. Yes. But no, they wanted to play, you know, their version of Tamla Motown and their version of some songs yeah. they were writing. So they did. Okay, uh, touché. And, I take the And point. that, you know, the Pathfinder... Uh, it's always it's always harder for the pathfinder the dr livingston i presume yes. uh because you're doing things that people aren't familiar with uh and and in 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 the the groovy world of show business then you hope that people like it yes. but no one can make a record uh and guarantee that it's a hit. You can't, you can't. You know, people have tried it. They say, well, we take a little bit of this Elton John song, a little, little, do, but you can't do that. And what's happening is we're, we're, we're in a world that is leaning more and more and, and will do more and more towards uh, a society whereby a lot of things that were done by human beings will be done by robots. But you cannot do the arts by robots so anyone who has some pretension to be an artist is comparatively safe at this point in time uh, because you can't get a robot to write a song or to make a sculpture or duh duh duh
0: point taken now and just along the same theme uh, the Beatles did play in Blackpool yeah they played in the Palladium for for the Queen. Yeah. Uh, Sunday night at Bradley the. Rattle your
1: fucking jewellery.
0: Yeah, yeah, but so, that's what uh, John said, I think. Um, so they were that in that establishment thing in their shiny suits with them up tops. And then they moved exactly as you proposed. They, you know, dramatically, this Sergeant Pepper's Lonely House Club. They revolted. They revolted. Now, I want to ask you. First of all, there was um, a thing that Yoko came. Uh, he, she, and John fell in love. You're, you're shaking. You're shaking your head. I don't I want to sh- ask you about the break, the band breaking up. I want to ask you about the dynamics of the Beatles. But I want to ask you first about this piece you wrote for Melody Maker, because you did. Um, you were at the Bed-In in Amsterdam. It's culturally uh, a very significant moment yes. that, that people uh, related to peace. They stayed in bed for a week or for a long time with lots of journalists around them. The establishment laughed and a lot of reactionary people, but they were making their statement, and you were there. That, that's correct, isn't it? Correct. What was it like to be there? Uh, What were they like? What was John Lennon like?
1: Uh, He was a whole very amazing bunch of different people. Right. You know, he was the peacenik. Yeah. He was the womaniser. I mean, these aren't all concurrent, you know. No. Uh, He was the drug addict. Uh, He was the, the, the incredibly creative songwriter. He was one of the best ever rock and roll voices. His guitar playing, although he wouldn't be touted as a lead guitarist, it's fantastic, you know. It's rough and ready and dirty, and get out of the way, baby. Yes. If he wants, you know, or his piano playing on "I Imagine," you know, which is basically a, a little nod, or if not more so, to "Love Letters in the Sand" by Ketty Lester. Yes. I don't know if you remember the I record Love, "Love Letters." Letters. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. You know, um, but you see, there's only probably only one tune, you know. Yes. Uh, and the vet- the rest is variations thereof. Now, that's an exaggeration, but it, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea to it, you know, like like ever-expanding mercury.
0: The dynamics in the Beatles, among them, uh, between uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, for example, but also George Harrison and uh, Ringo, perhaps to a lesser extent, I don't know. Um, how did, did that dynamic work? Who... Was it all co- collaboration? Was there a leader, uh, or were there, say, as people might imagine, McCartney pulling in one way and Lennon pulling the other way? Do you mind talking about that? Because no, I'm happy to you, talk. You about witnessed that. it
1: very closely. I want, but I want to emphasise, though, I wasn't in the band or anything. So, you know, um, but you, I mean, worked no, so you worked for Apple. you worked for Derek yeah. Taylor, who was very yeah, I did. close to him. He was
0: with them from day one. correct? He was in. Tell us that, about Derek a, Taylor.
1: A, Derek Taylor was. Um, uh, at Apple Records where he very kindly took me under his wing Derek Taylor was you know his official title would be Beatles press officer but he was literally in so many ways their guru yeah um uh with, with, with John and even more so with George uh if in doubt uh take some acid <laughs> you know um I mean one time was he a pardon was he a uh yeah I think so but he talked in a sort of uh, officer-type clipped thing. He'd been in the army or something, he had a moustache. Uh, but he was fantastic and I watched him, you know, and uh, you I know, only realized later I was watching him, you know, and I learned. For instance, you know, the editor of Woman's Own would come on the line about, you know, Mary Hopkins' new sweater for the front of the Radio Times. Okay. Mary and Hopkins
0: you, being one of the... One the Apple... The apple She was a kind yeah. of one-hit wonder, wasn't she? A
1: kind of straight girl, you know. Yes. She was not a freak. Uh, and everyone else was, including me. Because freak is not a derogatory word in this context. Uh, and then he'd take a call from, you know, let's say the International Times, some underground paper or something, and they're talking about John and Yoko and Acorns for Peace... And he could completely get into that person's head as well. But during all of this, he was always himself. It wasn't fake. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, and very kindly, he offered me some work there at Apple. You know, I was I was very peripheral to Apple. It wasn't like I was running the bloody thing, you know, <laughs> no, or, or I, telling them what record to put up. I might out. just
0: say that Apple was, um, put, after Brian Epstein had passed away and... They were trying to get control of their own music publishing. It was yes. a music publisher, correct? Pardon. It was a music
1: publishing company. Uh, everything, really. Yeah. And they wanted music. to control the whole thing they themselves. Wa- they wanted. Their, they wanted. Well, they would have had to give their money away in tax otherwise. Yeah. First of all, they opened Apple Boutique, which is a store for clothes, where this um, Dutch couple, Simon and Marika, who called themselves the Fool, made these very sort of effervescent, floaty sort of. M- of the time closed quite beautiful they painted john, john lennon's rolls royce for example you know with the when he went all psychedelic and all of that uh, that was a paint job it didn't happen overnight in some dream um Derek taylor yes yeah, so Derek taylor was was my, my was my entree to that you know um but and it, yoko. It was, it's funny having those four chaps as your bosses isn't it did you have yoko, yoko
0: as a friend or did you were you close enough to see what what effect you had
1: well I remember one time we were in a room uh, and John no Yoko went to the bathroom and John sat there and he just sat there as if he was a little child all on his own terrified of the world you know because his mama had gone yes mum wasn't there he wanted his mum you know
0: that's a really extraordinary image of someone like Lennon who's, you know...
1: Big a, star, right?
0: Yeah, big star, but also an in-your-face guy. Yeah. So there's a
1: contrast there that's quite extraordinary. He, you know, he said, I love Yoko because she's like a man. And Yoko, right. Yoko giggling away. You know. <laughs> and but Paul... I, I know what he meant. Paul McCartney well you see you're asking me about a very very complex thing I mean there have been many books written about this even the relationships inter Alia with the Beatles it changed you know at the beginning it was it was it was John and then John found this guy Paul McCartney because he, he knew the words to Eddie Cochran's 20 flight rock you know I got a girl with a rucka machine when it comes to rock and she's the queen etc very important things like that uh, so alright I'll bring him on board uh, meaning he'd have to surrender a bit of his own space, but this other cat was good, you know. Yeah. And then there's this guy with his sticky ears, you know. George is a sort of much younger than them, but he can play Ginchy, you know, which was an instrumental at the time. All right, we'll have him. A uh, lot of trouble getting a drummer. Most bands have lots of drummers before they settle on one. Uh, the Beatles had um, Pete Best towards the end, before Ringo. Uh, you could argue that they treated him very shabbily. Um, you know, he was the most handsome one. He would have girls sleeping in his garden. Um, he was known as the fifth beetle, wasn't he? Pardon? He was known as the fifth No, beetle. he Oh, was, no, that
0: was... Um, he was um, a beetle.
1: Uh, and they, they, they dumped him for Ringo. Now, Ringo's personality was much more suitable to the fabs. Yeah. You know, and you can even see it in the pictures, you know, how... How how Pete would have his hair still in the Tony Curtis kind of thing, and the rest were all mob tops
0: yeah, and uh, Ringo uh, uh, I think in all those northern bands, the Manchester Liverpool bands was regarded as having no peer in terms of his drumming,
1: no, Ringo was a bigger star than them when they invited yes. him to join you know he was in he was in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, who were yes. being very successful at Butlin's. <laughs> yeah, but you know, summer season yeah. and all of that, you know. yeah, Uh it's very well encapsulated in the film That'll be the Day written by Ray Coleman, uh, about beat groups starting out and then there's a follow up called um which I ne forget the title of when the, the 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 pop singer goes completely bonky, you know. Uh but but quite quite realistic.
0: Now you you moved on and you worked for Led Zeppelin later? Yeah. With um and they were
1: a super group. The biggest band in the world. The biggest band in the world. Before that was was T-Rex, which yeah, is very, very, very important Mark to me. Mark Boland. Yeah, because I love him. You know, not past tense, you'll note. Yeah. Uh, and he continues kindly to be one of my best friends um, and keeps an eye on this vagabond. Uh, with Mark, it was wonderful because... Rock and roll needed a little bit of effervescence. There's been the blues boom before that, you know, which was all very fine and some great bands, uh, but it wasn't horny and it wasn't frothy and it wasn't sexy and, it, it, you know, what rock and roll is meant to be, you know. Uh, and it became the biggest thing since the Beatles in Britain and Europe, you know. Ringo handed Mark Boland the crown by making a film about him which right. I thought was wonderful, generosity of spirit. Mm. You know, when we're making that film, at Empire Wembley Pool, there's T-Rex on stage and there's the audience and they're all going completely bonkers, having the best time in their lives they ever, ever, ever had. And Sometimes they'll re- something they'll remember forever. And there at the Barrier is this bearded guy filming, whereas not that many years ago he was the drummer on stage with these a different lot of yes. girls, maybe their mums, Yes, going completely bonkers. But right now he's completely ignored, you know. Yes, because the crown has been put on someone's head, someone else's head.
0: In in that same um, time and space, the Rolling Stones existed.
1: They sure did. And <laughs> you were.
0: Some people made a division between. They say the Beatles were sweet, but we prefer
1: the Stones because they're a lot more funky. Was that? Uh, a false that's Andrew Oldham you know who was wonderful manager of the Stones he was younger than all of them he was a fireball public schoolboy wasn't he kind of yeah kind of borderline like yourself Uh, well I'm I'm (laughs) whatever Um, yes Um, and Andrew Oldham he informed them with the image that still carries to this day you know the outlaw thing and all of that and Andrew Oldham had worked for Brian Epstein doing fabs PR really you know and they're all chums Yes. They bring each other up when you bring out your record, you know, and all that. I mean, the Beatles wrote the first Stones hit, "I Want to Be Your Man," right? You know, um, oh, they're very, very good chums all along the pair of them. And really, what's interesting, the Beatles are presented as these cuddly sort of fellows, you know, uh, and the Stones are presented, presented as these sort of, you know, bottom of the tree Neanderthals. Yes, uh, it was in real life more the other way round, funny enough you know the Beatles yeah. were the louts they were crazy you know what I mean I'm not saying they, were, they weren't They uh, were you know educated John Lennon art school and all that but they were you know tearaways where the Stones were more sort of Yeah, middle class white boys you know I actually acting met dirty Jag-
0: I met Mick Jagger once he came into the Shelburne Hotel looking for Paul McGuinness and it was when the Shelburne was usually quite empty uh, in the 80s and uh, he saw us sitting down and has anybody seen Paul McGuinness? And it was a real public school boy, you know, kind of thing. Nothing like this is Andrew. No,
1: uh, McJagger. Oh, right, right.
0: But he was a very kind of polite, quiet, so sort of well spoken.
1: Well, I admire guy. him. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. the, the 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 narrative is that Keith Richard is the cool guy. You know, he's the outlaw. He does it his way, and all of that. Uh, you know, and yet he brings out his book Life. Uh, which was you know like war 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 stories from the Boer War, I remember where we were in Arkansas, and we got stopped and I read know, the book actually, you yeah. know I thought it was quite uh, a good read, uh, horrible, uh you know, he gives out about mick jaggers Willie, yes you know i mean i, I thought you were meant yeah, to be cool, that. I thought you meant to be cool and relaxed what the are you worried about? What is your problem? He was very, very unkind. Uh, you know, in the last line about his relationship with Anita Pallenberg, who yes. died lately, who was, uh, she had some very dark streaks, but my gosh, she was one of the most magical people I've ever met, actually. She was wonderful, we always had a laugh, you know.
0: Now, the, um, the chaos, uh, the fantastic music, the excitement in England, particularly at that time. Uh, Did you enjoy it? Uh, Can you look at it uh, and say wow? Or did it all happen or was it all too chaotic for you to actually enjoy it? To
1: take in? No, it was mega wow. It was wow, 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 wow. Yeah. A lot of wow going on.
0: And did you do all the things that
1: I would have done
0: if I'd have been in your place? Uh,
1: I'm not sure what you would have done, but I'd probably not... you think all, I, not, probably I look not at the look at of my them. face. Probably not all of them. <laughs> no. Um, maybe later on there might have been more cups of tea, but not really. Not that, really. You know, am I a drug virgin, if that's the question? The answer is no. Uh, but, you know, I don't drink coffee, I don't drink tea, I don't drink caffeine, uh, uh, I, I don't drink alcohol. Uh, I'm a very clean-living fellow.
0: (laughs) Now, (laughs) at the same time, in the scene in Ireland, I want to talk about the the Irish thing. You mentioned Rory Gallagher, who um, was a great guitarist and a a tremendous influence. Yeah, a nice man. And like Joe Hurley, he he was from Cork. Joe Hurley, he's with you too, and you know, he's the main man, sound man he's um, a very nice man Joe Hurley he is and but he talks about the influence Rory Gallagher had on so many people yes including him and the Edge perhaps and all of that uh, you know, Tin Thin Lizzy and Phil in they were happening here as well Geldof and the Boontown Rats although that was a brief kind of you know uh, spark Um I still had about
1: eight hits or something though
0: the Boomtown Rats, yeah, did they? Yeah, I didn't think it was. That. Yeah. I can't remember one about not liking Monday. I uh, uh, but Phil in it um, as a figure in rock and roll in the pantheon. Is he? Is he there up there?
1: Oh, he's up there. Yeah, he's up there. See the thing about Phil in it. God bless him. Uh, when he was walking down Grafton Street, which was the sort of the perambulation of choice, if you like it, to yeah. put it in a very uh, Ifalutin way but people would walk up and down and that was the vibe you know like every town has somewhere like that yes. whether it's Sunset Strip at some part or you know yeah. 14th Street or whatever in New York whatever Phil would walk up and down there and he'd have these drainpipe trousers you know uh, rather like a council house you know because the council house has no ballroom um, and uh, he would have this sort of twinkle in his eye you know and he looked he looked fucking cool and the girls wanted to, you know, change bodily fluids with him and the guys wanted to be as cool as him. Yes. You know, this is before he was famous or anything. Yes. So uh, he had a built-in, built-in charisma. Uh, in terms of his music, it was much wider than, you know, people who aren't versed in it might think. In other words, it's not all just sort of hard rock or heavy metal. There's some beautiful, sensitive songs there, you know, ballads, things like I'm Still In Love With You or Kathleen or something like that. Yes. Very soft, very gentle. He was very interested in his own Irishness um, and he also was an experimenter with music, you know, like he started working with Major, and they did the Top of the Pops thing, you know, and there's, it's there's more sort of like computery music, for want of a better description. So, uh, if he was around now, I'm sure he would r- still be... Um, doing really interesting things. You know, there was, after Thin Lizzy, you know, it was hard for him, Uh, but that would have resolved itself because he was a very resilient fellow and a very nice guy, too, and helped everybody. Helped so many bands, so many bands. You ask people in bands, you know, he helped the Boomtown Rats so much. He helped the Radiators from Space so much. He helped, you know, other bands, Graham Parker and The Rumor or whoever it might be. Very, very wonderful, like that. You know, I was managing Johnny Thunders. God bless him. Johnny was, is most infamously known as uh, the guitar player in the New York Dolls, who were one of the most important rock and roll bands ever. Uh, and I was managing him, and I, Phil Lynott was one of the musicians I brought down to play on his album. Um, and he was great. He was you know, mucked in, and you know, and, and it was interesting for Phil because the majority of the musicians came from what would lazily be called the punk thing you know Chrissy Hine came and sang backing vocals, Stephen Paul from the Sex Pistols played uh, wonderful Irish gentleman, God bless him John Irish Earl who I'd known since he'd been in the Mexican show band with Tony Kenny and Tina and here he is with all of these New York subterranean demi monde people playing like King Curtis it was fantastic um, let me ask you something
0: the evident love in your voice when you talk about these people uh, these great magical people who created so much beautiful uh, wonderful music if we fast forward to today where are they and how can they survive in uh, an an age where you have say Spotify where you you can't own your own music anymore. Uh, um, was it Taylor Swift who said she wouldn't go on Spotify? She wouldn't allow her music to be played there. She felt she was big enough. There are people like Adele, um, that sort of wonderful pantheon. It includes David Bowie, which I'd like to ooh, I'd like to talk to you about in a moment. Mark Bolin, John Lennon, uh, all of those wonderful. Um,
1: I mean, those are all men you mentioned, but they're all main men. There's main women as well. Uh, you know, yeah, well, like y- you'd know them,
0: of course, mean uh, Franklin yeah. all of those people, yeah. yeah uh, the who, Motown.
1: These are people who are up there. Yes. You know, uh, that, you know there, is a, there is a rankage, I suppose, you know, you know Brian Poole and the Tremolos versus I remember Brian Poole so and the Tremolos. I mean. they, f- they were from the south of England. They were. Decker signed them because yeah. they were nearer from nearer than Liverpool.
0: Yeah, um, um, just want to ask about, they, has that world and that culture, counterculture maybe, that produced all that wonderful music, is it dead?
1: Well, if you look at something like just say, you know, Swinging London, so-called, and you look at uh, at one point, you know, the Speakeasy Club or before that the Ad Lib Club. Socially, everyone would go and hang out there, so it would be Beatles and PJ Proby and Cilla Black and the Stones and Sonny and Cher, whoever was in town, the Four Tops or something, you know. Um, it doesn't seem to be anywhere like that. In any artistic form, you need a hub. In New York, you know, it was the factory uh, with Andy Warhol, and, and, and parallel to that was, uh, you know, it was um, uh, Max's Kansas City. You could go there. You know, I went to Max's Kansas City, and Iggy Pop is a friend of mine for a long time. Uh, and he said, "Do you know that you have you met and he introduced me to uh Andy Warhol and Lou Reed sitting there uh Andy Warhol was in a sort of a down period. It looked like his wig was sporting cobwebs, and Lou Reed had the you know charisma of a a blancmange uh i and I, I met Lou Reed since and it was it was much better um The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes people aren't shiny, shiny all the time. You know, David Bowie could walk down the streets in New York and not be recognised, you know, but equally he could put on his David Bowie thing and he couldn't walk one inch without people going bonkers. Yeah, I saw
0: a quote you you gave to somebody when David Bowie died and you called him a man of a trillion... uh, Faces. Faces, which I thought was... And and you also added a writer saying all of them real. All of them real. And tell me about Bowie. Does he he in any way... I mean, owe anything to Mark Boland or... Yes. Yeah. I mean, Bowie... Tell me about the development, because it goes back to my stupid question about Dylan not playing the songs I like. Oh, yeah. And the, the thing that has to take this art form... Ano- to another, another step, step or, a t- or do it different step.
1: Well, what happened was when, when, when Mark Boland and T-Rex became popular, he and David Bowie had been friends for a long time, yeah. and kind of competitors, yeah. you know, and they would hang out at this place in Denmark Street, which is where all the music publishers was and guitar shops, uh, in a place called the Gioconda Coffee Bar, and people regarded them as two losers. Mm. It's not going to happen for them. They've been hustling for so long. David had had a one-hit record with Space Oddity, which people regarded as some gimmicky record about a spaceship, you know. Uh, and then Mark played on the follow-up to that, The Prettiest Star, which David had written about Mark. Mark played the guitar on that, and it sold three copies or something. you know. Yeah. So it was all over, theoretically, for David. And, and Mark hadn't had a nibble. He'd been in a band called John's Children, where he played raucous guitar uh, suitably badly. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, and then there was Tyrannosaurus Rex, which, if you like, was hippy-dippy. And then T-Rex, which was hard on. Yes. You know. Yeah. There was You know, that was sexy, fun music. And if you listen to those records now, you know, not only through the band's abilities and, and Mark's abilities as a musician and and singer and songwriter, but Tony Visconti, the record producer, who did a lot of work with with David Bowie, uh, those those T Rex records sound fantastic. You play Get It On now or something like that. It sounds great. It doesn't sound like some old fart,
0: right? Well, what transformed? Was there a transformative moment for Bowie that took him from being was, yeah. perceived as, a, as was, a loser? There
1: was a moment when he and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars played Top of the Pops, and David Bowie put his arm around Mick Ronson, the guitar player. It's a very beautiful man, both musically and as a chap. Uh, and a lot of people freaked out. And they remember it forever. Ask Bono about that, you know. Yeah. You know, Bono said he saw Mark Boland on television and realized he fancied him, even though he's straight. Yeah. Uh, and then he saw uh, <coughs> this homoerotic thing happening between um, David Bowie and Mick Ronson, as did the world, you know, and everyone went, oh, my God, my God. And suddenly it wasn't all guys with moustaches and stuff, you know, and <laughs> singing about you know, <laughs> which get, had
0: been the Ze- Led Zeppelin period. And had well,
1: not I think to be fair, or the super Led, Led period. Zeppelin is above all of that. Yes, you know, uh, sometimes you have an artist or something who's just above everybody else, like Prince. You know, even Prince had never sold a record in his life. Uh, you, you couldn't just you couldn't deny how incredibly talented he was would he play any instrument. You know what did you get in Prince? You got Jimi Hendrix.
0: Yeah.
1: You got Little Richard.
0: Yeah.
1: The only white guy probably you got Mark Bolan in there. You know. Yes. Yeah. But all of these people, uh, and you look at someone like that, and you, you it's it's beyond rationality. It's beyond practicing for many hours in the bathroom. Jimi Hendrix the same. Jimi Hendrix, you know. You could say he came here and did his thing and then disappeared again, like some spaceman. You know, we're all different, uh, and some of us come come here for a reason, and sometimes it seems that we're taken away too early. I know we both have friends who would fit into that context, you know. Uh, And the whole thing about not being at 17 anymore, it's very interesting when people start dying of old age who are younger than you. (laughs) Yes.
0: <laughs> now, the uh, just before I move on to what you're doing now, uh, and I want to just go back to the idea that kind of world we're living in, um, w- which is controlled by corporations. Uh, well, is, is, is it possible that that whole era of those great people? Um, cannot, in another form, be recreated.
1: Cannot sustain. Well, yeah. you know the, the, some of the because
0: repos- of of uh, ca- how do you get paid? I know for your know, for, for your songs.
1: How do you get paid now? If you're you know if you're Taylor Swift or something, it's different to me because I'm not on. I'm right down the bottom of this tree, right? Yes. You know, let's be honest. But let's say something like Spotify, for instance, right? Um, uh, by the end of 2016, uh, music revenues, 51.4% came from streaming services. So more than half the, the, the revenue generated came from there. Uh, Spotify, just to mention one streaming service, and of which there are many, uh, is largely owned by the record companies. Uh, they've just inaugurated a thing whereby. Uh, the record companies can buy time for their artists. Um, So there's two questions to raise here. Is One, well, all right, the record companies are paying themselves to plug the artist. Uh, And I'm sure the artist is going to be charged for this. Yes, but they always did that in a way. It's a double thingy. Um, uh, And and then the other thing is, you know, you know, I get checks that sort of point. 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, one. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but what's happening now is uh, there's there's a new app coming out. It's called Stationhead. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it'll it'll be only tied in with Spotify, Premier. Uh, but the idea is to make it that uh, 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 agnostic in terms of what platform it goes with. Uh, and what it is is, uh, with this app, you can. Uh, not just make a playlist of a bunch of records but you can talk as well and you can be a dj at home and you can even make telephone calls and other people can talk to you so you've got a radio station because it used to be uh, if you want to sell a record you got on the radio yeah right that hasn't that is the, it's still true but you know it's vastly diluted uh, radio by and large now looks towards streaming to tell them what they should play right. you know you mentioned Taylor Swift putting all her stuff on on uh, on Spotify in fact all the different streaming things putting it back on there yes. uh, what she did uh, having refused initially having refused it what, what people with an eagle eye will notice is she did it on the same day as Katy Perry's new record came out and her and Katy Perry by all accounts are not the best of chums, so it's like uh, to you uh I saw a figure which is debated, which is that on the first two weeks she made two hundred grand now that's really piddle because an artist like Taylor Swift per concert makes uh, about roughly give or take two million whatever it doesn't matter at that point in time what in yens or whatever. I mean, the figures have just come out for U2's, the first 10 gigs of U2's tour. 50 million. Uh, 55 million, yeah. you know. Um, so they, you make you know, your money
0: now touring, and it, maybe you always made your money touring.
1: Well, you, well, with a band like Led Zeppelin, touring was very important, you know. Yeah. But equally, they were selling 100 million records, yeah. you know. Uh, Jack White uh, had the, the biggest selling record, Lazaretto, a couple of years ago in... Uh, in the world, uh, it sold sixty thousand copies of LPs, right? Lots of CDs and downloads, mm-hmm. but LPs—it was the biggest-selling LP, and people were really thrilled with that figure, sixty thousand. Yes. Now, that's what you would sell in a couple of days. Yes, back then.
0: The just while you mentioned you two there, the experience of going on the Zoo TV tour and being in the old Trabant, uh, DJing. Where do they fit in the pantheon, if at all?
1: Well, it's a very
0: I know it's a naughty tough question. question, there, Raymond. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's uh, but, you know, there is only us
1: here, so you can tell me. And us chickens. <laughs> um, where do you two fit into the rock and roll pantheon? If you two had only written the song one, yes, and if they, they hadn't even recorded it, but Johnny Cash recorded it as he did, that would yes. be enough that's more than most people do in a whole bloody career, this is one of the most incredible songs Johnny Cash does it fantastic, that'll do
0: Okay Uh, I think there's an answer there somewhere (laughs) 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 See, um, now you're having a fantastically rich life now you're doing something different right, you are now performing and DJing um, I'm not
1: DJing much, maybe. Really.
0: You're not, you're just no. performing. I,
1: I'm, I'm a wedding DJ. I've, done, I've DJed a few. How much do you cost? That,
0: that, that if there's anyone out there who wants you, how I much? Just,
1: that doesn't, I do it for nothing. You do it for nothing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my mean, third marriage. I, I, <laughs> I could give you some very um, I'm only kidding. cohesive names, but I won't. You know, but people I've done it for, for fun who I know are my friends, you know, yeah. uh, and can afford to send a private jet for me. No, that's a joke. Well, not necessarily, actually. <laughs> um, um, so, yes, now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a musician, I suppose. Uh, do I play any instrument? Well, no, I don't. I play a bit of guitar on my next record. You sang uh, on the Late Late Show recently. I sang on the Late Late Show, yeah. I did, uh, with a young the, lady. The song Hot Tongue, yeah, uh, which I recorded in Texas with two singers, uh, one of whom is Annie Marie Lewis, and she talks about her uncle every now and again. You know, oh, uncle didn't have his breakfast. Jerry Lee Lewis is her uncle. Wow. And I go, Oh my you know, oh bloody hell, you know. So I laugh. I think, Oh God, Jerry Lewis hears my music. That's that's pretty wild, you know. Um I did it here on the Late Late show with a lady called Emma Lou and her band The Agenda. Um Irish band, very good band, sort of soul type thing, you know. Yeah. Etta James and all of that. Uh, so yes, I'm making records. Uh I love it very much. Uh am I any good at it? That's a debate for other people Uh, I I I think I am I I know I'm a good lyricist people say oh you're such a great poet I'm not a poet uh, unless the definition of poet uh, is a series of words in some sort of flow that makes sense and move you then uh, they do that but in the Fallon family the poet is Peter Fallon a very well esteemed poet globally uh, and also the publisher of Gallery Press Uh, and and I'm the kind of, I'm the sort of lunatic rock and roller I suppose but I love writing songs, I love recording them Uh, the thing that I'm least interested in all of that funny enough uh, is all the propagation and the salesmanship and all of that Uh, people think oh well you can do that easy because you've done it before you know uh, for other people yes I have but I wouldn't have a clue how to do it now A because I don't know those people Anymore. I don't know who the editor of Time magazine is right now, I can't ring them up, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I also, it's but easy to do repre- some things yes. for other people, you want to represent yourself. you represent yourself. yourself and you say, oh, well, it should be on the front cover, say. Uh, they say, oh, what a big head, you know, you ring up the record and say, well, you, you've got to spend so much on promotion. Whereas if you ring it up on my behalf, they say that yeah. aim is a pain in the arse, but isn't the artist lovely? Yeah. I mean, I read an interview with Frank Sinatra and he said, you know, even I, meaning I'm Frank Sinatra, even I need representation. You know. yeah. Frank Sinatra um, was broke when he died. You know that? Pardon?
0: Frank Sinatra was broke when he died. Was he? Yes.
1: Was he? So was Elvis, nearly. Yeah.
0: It's uh, sort of poignant to think about those things, isn't it? It, been depend- so much it
1: depends how he was broke. I mean, was he broke because he'd happily spent everything or was he broke because it had all gone horribly wrong? Uh, I mean, I'm sure Frank Sinatra got good value. I read a quote from... Um, Who's that very pretty girl he married, uh, who was in a soap opera, um, uh, and an actor? Uh, uh, Frank Sinatra and uh, Oh yeah, Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow. Yeah, Farrell. Mia Farrow. She said when you went to dinner with Frank, you always bring your passport. <laughs> know. Yeah, you know, cause it's the same he, with Johnny Roland. I think which I've, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've I've taken up with no success. Let me ask you uh, a I, final question. I don't know. Jo- I don't think Johnny Logan has a plane with Uh Johnny Roland. I don't know who that is. No, <laughs>
0: your, your your life is not poorer uh, <laughs> for <laughs> that beep. He's a property developer. Uh-huh. Now you spend a lot of time in Austin, in Texas. I do. which is a very beautiful I city. I believe it's I the political capital of Texas, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so
1: Texas, you know, is not known for its forward thinking, um, but Austin is this oasis in the middle of it. It's yeah. rather, rather like I don't know if you ever went to Berlin through East Germany, you know, you'd go through this rather dodgy area. <laughs> kind of, you know, I can't go many miles outside of Austin no. because some fellow could come up to me and yeah, it could be tricky, Do you know. You take
0: that bandana off your head and kind jog of
1: it. whatever, you yeah. know. Um, uh, but Austin's cool, it's liberal. Uh, I go for the, for, for the music. Uh, here is for family uh, and some music. Uh, and New York is for benign fun and frolics. Yeah. And you know, you know. Benign fun. Benign fun and frolics. What's and, benign fun? Well, Be- misbehavior, you know. Yeah. But pretending I'm 15 again. <laughs> Has
0: an amazing golden age past in music and popular culture?
1: At this point in time quite possibly yes in everything there's a golden age you know Hollywood sculpting painting movies photography you know when you remember there was David Bailey and there was Donovan and there was Uh, and I feel very blessed uh, to have um not only lived through a golden age of music but you know in my own little way contributed here and there to the shape thereof yes um, i would think that it's not dissimilar with you with football you know i mean you you saw um george best yes you know yes um, which is which is one of those beyond yes. situations you probably knew the gentleman you know I did. um yes. And then that's a blessing because that couldn't have happened in another time span. Yes, you know. Uh, I mean, does do, do sports have golden ages? I'm not sure. They do, do they? Um, yeah. Well, then you'd know that what a, what a privilege one feels, and you must. This is this. Is just me a, a parallel with you, uh, loosely or otherwise, whereby you you feel honoured to have been part of something yeah. um, that's uh, that's magnetic, yes, and effervescent and. You know, pop music changed my life for better or worse. You know, at school I was told, "Oh, you'll grow out of it, Fallon." You yes. know, well, I didn't. Um, what do I think of the state of pop music now? Uh, I think it's on it's on a hinge. You know, on, on one hand you have very successful artists like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and you know Bruno Mars and the more pop sort of thing, uh, and then the more rock and roll thing uh, is not. Where it was in terms of profile. If you look at the Billboard Hot Two Hundred, you know, you might see a Jack White record or you might see da, 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 but mainly you won't. Now, is that a problem? No, it's not. It just means the audience like a different thing. Well let uh, me and ask they, you and they have every entitlement to do so.
0: About finally, the voice. Britain's got talent. That awful Simon Cowell uh, and his awful show. Isn't that the sort of uh, road you have to travel.
1: No, it's a road. I've never seen it, so I, I don't know. It's not. I imagine it's not the kind of thing I would enjoy. No, you um, would. You know. Uh, but I've been guilty of similar things. You know, there was a thing called uh, screen tests here with Mike Murphy on television in yeah. the eighties, and you had people there doing their bits You know, you'd go backstage and the child is crying and the mother is making them do it. (laughs) That's right. Horrific, you know. That sounds like... Um, But back to the X Factor stuff and all of that. Um, You know, Neil Young or Bob Dylan or John Lennon wouldn't get a look in. They'd say, oh, we don't like your hair or something, or you can't sing, or you need a stylist, you know. If you put a little pink in your hair, Bob, it might just, you know...
0: <laughs> I think on that sort of <laughs> image, we'll end the conversation. I'm really grateful to you for being here with us.
1: Well, thanks, Simon. And Thank you. I'm it's sure nice our to audience are
0: as well. This is one of the great, great Irish men, and uh, I'm very happy that uh, you're still
1: rocking, Mary. Well, I'm very honoured, Eamon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, Thank you so. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by BlueBotix Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.